Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Before we get into the message today, those of you at home, welcome. We're glad you're joining us online. Before we get into the message, though, I'm struggling this morning. I don't know how many of you are. I drug my butt into this place this morning, exhausted. And I felt like I slept okay last night, but let's be honest, I don't know that I really did. Coffee that I had this morning hasn't really perked me up yet. And so I'm going to do the best I can with what I have, but I'm dragging this morning. Let's say it about that song they were just singing. What an amazing song. And I, it's not, I, I, all right, I'm, I'm kind of dense. And uh, I don't always catch things on the first go around. But I was thinking of that, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. And it made me think of the Genesis account and the creation of man when God, and I know that's probably what the author of the song was thinking the whole time. And it's taken me how many years after singing this song that I'm sitting here with this beautiful imagery of the breath of God breathing into the nostrils of man, the breath of life, and how he does that each and every time with each and every one of us when we take our first breath. I don't know, it it struck me today differently than it ever has before. It was truly not just a revelation for God for me, but an open opportunity for me to worship in a way that maybe I haven't um, in a while. So full transparency, that's me. Uh, Again, very dense, uh, picking up on things that are amazingly theologically biblical and honestly overwhelmingly powerful when you really think about what you're singing, all right, has nothing to do with the sermon today, okay? All right. If you've been reading with us in our yearly Bible readings, uh, we are actually around the area of Ezra. Uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, all of that. You'll, You'll find that close to the middle of the Bible. But if you've been reading along with us, today's passage will more than likely be familiar to you or will be familiar to you shortly as you come to this reading and your reading uh, over the course of this year. I want to look at King Cyrus this morning. King Cyrus has been in the news for the past five years. All right, if you've watched any political stuff, you'll see certain equations or correlations with Cyrus and Trump and all that. I'm not going there, okay? And not because I have any particular bent politically one way or the other. I don't want to over-politicize Scripture, okay? What I want to do this morning as we look at Scripture and what I feel compelled to do and inspired to do by the Holy Spirit is look at Cyrus in the context of ancient Israel, after the exile. If you remember, we've been looking at the exile of the Israelites under King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Remember they took over, they sacked the temple and tore it down stone by stone. And they were told by Jeremiah the prophet in the Old Testament that they would be in exile for 70 years. Now flash forward. To Ezra chapter 1. 
70 years has lapsed, and Cyrus is now the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. Well, what has happened in 70 years? Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, they were the mightiest empire on the face of the earth at the time. And in 70 years, you now have a different empire? Yeah, you do. The Medo-Persian Empire actually ended up taking over within that 70 years. And we see this man by the name of Cyrus, who is the emperor of the Medo-Persian Empire, much different than his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar's son. He's now this benevolent king. We're going to talk about how that played into the factor of God's people going back to their holy land and reestablishing the city of Jerusalem, building the temple, the altar of worship and sacrifice. But before we get there, I want to ask you, when was the last time something happened that seemed to be an unlikely thing to happen to you in a good way? When was the last time something unexpected happened through one of the most unlikely of things to bring about a blessing to you? Because oftentimes, if we're not careful, what can end up happening is we can mess God's blessings because we expect God to only bless this way when God has a full disposal of options to bless us with. The problem is we oftentimes put God in this nice little neat and tidy box of our own making and say, God, you can only work this way. And if you work outside of the context of my expectation, then it can't be you. Correct? That's oftentimes what I hear as a pastor. And so when God actually moves in a way we don't expect, Sometimes we can often reject that blessing or that message because it comes from an unlikely place or character. I was reading, trying to find a great illustration for this, and I think I found one. You can tell me when I'm done reading it whether or not it really illustrates this well or not. But there's a story told of how a safari hunter was was uh, startled by this loud screeching bird when he was on safari doing some hunting and stuff uh, in Africa. And when he caught sight of this bird that was making this horrible screeching sound, it was darting back and forth on its nest up in this tree. So this hunter was perplexed by all the racket until he noticed this huge snake moving up the tree. The hunter could have easily aided the bird with one shot from his gun, then and there, saved the bird, the eggs in the nest. But he was so captivated by the drama, he, he, this is really bad, we do this, right? It's a train wreck, let's watch. So he's watching the snake slither its way up this tree toward this, toward this nest, and he's just so captivated by all of this, and he does nothing to intervene. As the snake slithered up the tree, the bird ended up becoming silent and flew away from the nest. Now, it seems uncharacteristic, right? For a mama bird or papa bird, it could have been. Fly away from the nest. 
It seemed as though the snake would be able to dine without resistance on the eggs. But before the reptile could reach the nest, the mother bird returned with a leaf in her beak. She carefully placed the leaf over the eggs and then flew to another tree. Kind of odd behavior, right? I mean, we don't see this every day. The snake raised its head to strike when he reached the nest, but hesitated. It froze as if it met an unlikely foe. Slowly, it ended up recoiling from the nest and going back down the tree. So this puzzled hunter, who's watching this whole thing unfold right in front of him, goes back into town where the natives are, and he tells them what he just experienced while on safari out there in the wilderness, and they start chuckling. And he said, oh, that's not strange at all. Actually, that leaf that the bird brought to the nest was poisonous to the snake. And so it shielded the babies in the nest from likely destruction. Some of the most unlikely of things in life can be blessings. Things we don't always understand in life could be for our protection and for our good. How many of you have gone through difficult circumstances? How many of you have cursed God? And don't raise your hand on that one. I mean, that would be a little embarrassing. I mean, you might be bold and, yeah, I've cursed God right to his face. And, well, that's probably not a good idea, just first off. And secondly, it's probably not a good idea, second off. So just don't do it, right? But here's the thing. How many times have we encountered tough difficulties in our life, but we get on down the roadways and we can look back and we say, if it weren't for that thing or that difficulty, this course correction in my life that I couldn't see at the time would not have happened that would have benefited me the way it has now. See, we only see through a glass dimly or darkly, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. But when we are there face to face with him, when this life is over, we will see very clearly the roadmap of life, the course corrections of life, and it'll all make sense if you trust in God. If you reject God along the way, you reject his blessings. If you reject the unlikely things that he does that are not in contradiction to his word, but rather don't inhibit his power and authority. If you reject all of that along the way, destruction is at the end of the line. I know that's not a popular teaching nowadays, especially from the church. But if you do things God's way, things usually work out for the best. I say, no, things always work out for the best. If you do things your way, temporarily they may seem to work out. But more often than not, by the end of your life, if you've done things your way all the time and rejected God to that last breath, Every warning sign along the way that you saw that was trying to correct you back on track or to God's track will stand as a stark reminder 
of what you could have done but didn't. So we come to this place in Ezra, chapter 1, starting with verse 1. How does all of this play together? Well, it's because Cyrus was not a godly king. He was stirred by God, which we'll find out in a minute, but he was a pagan god. His, his key gods were Nebo and Baal, or Bel. Do you know anything about those guys? They're super cute when you carve them out of stone or wood and place them on your mantle. Don't ever do that. Again, first off, it's not the right thing to do. And secondly, it's not the right thing to do, Okay. Just in case I lost you there, come back to me, all right? Cyrus was not a godly king. He was a pagan king who worshiped multiple different gods, the highest of whom his patron gods were Bel and Nebo at the time. The god Marduk was the patron king of the Babylonians. Marduk was the big god, like Zeus was for the Greeks, okay? But Bel and Nebo were Cyrus's gods. So why am I telling you all this? Well, let's look and then we'll get into the meat of the word today. So we come to chapter one, 70 years has lapsed. And it says in verse one, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. Again, what is that prophecy? The prophecy was, under Jeremiah, when King Nebuchadnezzar was ruling over Babylon, that Jerusalem would be overtaken, the temple would be destroyed, and they would go into exile for a minimum of 70 years, or 70 years, so to speak. And when you actually look at the timeline, we're right there. So now a generation or two have died, You don't have the original generation living that saw that. And if you do have some that were living, they were just babies at the time taken off into exile. And Cyrus comes to power. And what has been happening has been fulfilled through Jeremiah's prophecy by God. He stirred the heart, God did, of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. And this is what the king of Cyrus Or the King Cyrus of Persia says, the Lord, now when you see that, uh, those of you at home or here, hopefully it translated over. It did not. So look, on verse 2, where it says, the Lord, the God of heaven, Lord should be all caps. Why? Because that is representative of the holy name of God given to Moses at Mount Sinai, or excuse me, in the wilderness through the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. I am that I am is the name that God gave Moses to tell him, you go in my name back to the people. When they ask, you tell them the great I am, or I am has sent you. When you see G-O-D or L-O-R-D in all caps, it is that what they call the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, meaning Yahweh. Yahweh translated means I am. So that should say, from King Cyrus, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. 
Now, I want to tell you in just a few moments, we're only seeing a part of the story here. This is the Jewish aspect of the story of the exiles being returned. But there were many other peoples that were conquered by Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar that Cyrus was also setting free to go back to their homes and their places of worship. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem and Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. All right, stop. Where does God live? Even in that day and age, God didn't dwell specifically in one city. God is the God of all creation. And I want to, this is just a hint of the fact that though God had stirred Cyrus's heart, Cyrus wasn't completely knowledgeable of everything of this God named Yahweh, who was God of the Jews in Jerusalem. Now, yes, God resided over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in that day, and that's where the high priest would go on behalf of the people. But here's the thing, God doesn't dwell in a specific city. He never has, he never will. Does he come down in a specific city? Did he come down in the tabernacle, in that tent when it traveled through the wilderness? Of course he did. He is not bound to a space or a time, he just is. This is why God is that he is, okay? Verse four. Oh, and he says, and may your God be with you. Verse four, wherever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for the journey and livestock, as well as voluntary offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem, wherever they may be found. You remember in Jeremiah, uh, they would be taken over and they would be dispersed throughout the whole kingdom of Babylon, not just in one specific region or territory. Babylon. So it says, wherever these Jewish people may be found within the whole empire, their neighbors and the natives of the land there should contribute to their going back home. Now, this may all seem coincidental unless you know the history involved here in reference uh, to verse 1. Jeremiah's prophecy is found in Jeremiah 25, verse 11, and also Jeremiah 29, 10. You can jot that down if it's not already in your notes. Jeremiah 25, 11, and 29, 10. This is about the 70 years of exile. In addition to Jeremiah's prophecy of the 70 years of exile of the people of God, Isaiah also prophesied about this event, and more specifically, the return of the exiles back to Jerusalem under the king by the name of Cyrus, some 150 years before it actually happened. So if you look in, in Isaiah, you can find Isaiah naming this coming future king or emperor who would set captives free to come back out of exile. And he names him by the very name Cyrus. 
This is why I'm telling you, it's not difficult when you really understand the word of God to find evidence of the divine nature of who he is, not only through the writings of the words of the prophets, but through the fulfillment of those prophecies in other aspects of scripture. We see this often with the coming of Christ as a baby in Bethlehem. Some of the things that Jesus could have never orchestrated to be fulfilled were fulfilled through him. Okay, but I digress. That's a different sermon for a different time. We see this, though, 150 years in Isaiah's prophecies, a guy by the name of Cyrus rising to power and setting the exiles off back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. So what's the key point from all of this this morning? is that God's purposes can be fulfilled through some of the most unlikely of people. Can God use non-Christians, unbelievers, or pagans to do his bidding? Yes. We see this over and over and over again in Scripture. And now, we might deem that as sacrilegious or wrong or ill-conceived by God. Why would you use them But we also see, yet again, over and over and over, God chooses some of the most unlikely of people who are God-fearing to do his bidding. Why did he choose the 12 he chose, Jesus, to follow him in the New Testament, in the Gospels? He didn't choose the best, the highest in their class. He didn't choose the ones who were well-known in society for their great and mighty good deeds that were popular, who did he choose? Jesus chose fishermen, everyday laborers. He chose terrorists. There were a couple zealots on his team. And a zealot was a modern-day, or in those days, terrorist toward the Roman government. They were called zealots. They'd keep daggers up the sleeves of their robes so that they could quickly get in and mingle with the crowd, get close enough to somebody in power and authority in the Roman government, stab them, and take off running. That's what zealots were known for in that day. Barabbas, during the trial of Jesus, was a zealot who got freed back to, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. Do you remember that? So Jesus had a couple of these guys on his team. We like to whitewash scripture oftentimes in the church to make it seem that the holiest of people were the most worthy. Whereas, as a matter of fact, it wasn't the holiest of people that God chose. Quite the contrary, it, were the, it was the ones that, that the rest of the world looked over. Now, how does that play into the context today? Because if you are listening to what I'm saying through a political lens, or if you're listening through a political mindset, or through any other mindset than a biblical mindset, you are starting to make analogies that are not proper or good. 
But if you have your mind set on the things of God and politics and everything else aside, you can actually see the forest for the trees with regard to understanding what God's word really means and how he works. Again, he will never function or work contrary to his holy word. And when you see somebody or some group saying this is what God wants his church to do or his people to do, but it runs contrary to the word, you can know that God is not in that. That doesn't mean to say that God cannot use unlikely of people to do his bidding and his work. Let's continue. I'm really digressing on that point, but let's go. How does God accomplish this in this passage of scripture? Let's take a look. Though Cyrus was a benevolent king, benevolent meaning good, he was merciful. His motives were more than likely political. We have in historical records and in the museum called a, uh, a, the Cyrus Cylinder. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, it's so much fun. You should read about it. It's super exciting. So the Cyrus Cylinder is basically like a clay cylinder that has cuneiform and different types of, you know, impressions on it. Basically talking about this instance. The exiles going back to their homelands. So it does attest to the veracity of Scripture when we just read that. Yes, it says that. But there were also all of these other peoples, as I mentioned a little while ago. They were also sent back, and the cities where they were coming from in the empire of Medo-Persia were told, you need to give them tributes and honors and all of these things so that they can go back to their cities and reestablish their cities and their temples of worship. So not only were the Jews allowed to go back, so were all the other peoples to their other places and gods of worship. Now, why did Cyrus do this? Well, it is believed by most theologians and scholars and even non-biblical scholars that Cyrus was doing a political play. Nebuchadnezzar ruled by brute force. And so did his descendant, his son. But Cyrus wouldn't do that at all. Cyrus said, let's, let's come at this from a different approach. If I want to garner the support of the peoples who we conquered, then I need to get them on my good side. Right now, they're not on anybody's good side except their own. But if I could send them home <clears throat> to reestablish their towns, their cities, their places of worship, then they'll probably serve me unlike any other group. They will probably pay homage to me for letting them do this. It says in the Cyrus Cylinder that Cyrus requested that those exiles that were going back make sure that they pray to their gods, Yahweh or whatever gods these other people were worshiping, pray to their gods to bless his gods so that his gods would shine on him. So Yahweh, when you guys go back and reestablish the temple in Jerusalem, make sure you pray to Yahweh to bless Bel and Nebo, so that he will, they will shine 
uh, greatly on me and I will be successful. Could you do that? I mean, I'll give you this, you do this for me. Now, <clears throat> we tend to, again, over spiritualize stuff like this when we don't understand some of the other historical findings in the archaeological records. So you may be asking yourself, well, then how did God stir his heart? Did he stir his heart to send these other pagan peoples back to worship their own gods? Is that possible? Would God do that? See, God can stir the heart of somebody by just putting this little sense of conviction on you. It's not, your, it's not him, his way of forcing you to do something, okay? But how many of you have ever been convicted about something you're doing or something you're not doing or something you should do, right? Yeah, I have. It's God stirring my heart through the power of his Holy Spirit to say, I would like for you to do this or I would like for you to stop doing this. This isn't my best for you, and it's not going to lead you to what's best for you. So I need you to do this versus this. I would like for you to do this versus that. And we call, you can call it a conscience. You can call it conviction. You can call it whatever. But God utilizes those things that he has implanted in us naturally as image bearers of God to see things, to feel things, to experience things that can only come through his prompting. And so God moves on the heart of Cyrus for the purpose of setting, yes, the Israelites free so that they can go back because of God's promise to let them go after 70 years. Does it diminish the fact that God is all powerful and good knowing what I just told you? Is God able to use natural processes to bring about his goodwill? Of course he is. It doesn't make God any less divine, any less powerful if he can prompt a pagan king to do something that would benefit his own people, but God's people. The second thing is Cyrus was not dismissive of God, but believed that he had allowed him to be placed in power at the time. He attributes, at least in the writing of Ezra, Yahweh has allowed me to be in power. Why? If you look, you notice Daniel. What does Daniel do? Daniel is a common key player from Nebuchadnezzar on through the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel, if you read his prophecies, was beneficial to each of those emperors in ways that only God could do. He never compromised his values, his integrity. He never compromised his faith and belief in God. Daniel never did. But if you look at Daniel and his story, which runs alongside of this one, Cyrus leaned heavily on Daniel. So who then does Cyrus attribute for godly counsel. Of course, Yahweh. Yahweh is the one who's allowing this to happen. So when you guys go back too, make sure you have Yahweh. 
pray on my behalf too. See, I think oftentimes we get in our minds that non-believers or those who reject God are completely opposed to anything or any conversation of God. They're not. Yes, you have ardent atheists and agnostics who really scoff at the idea that there is a God. You talk about anything God-oriented and they just frown, scoff, mock. But not everybody who doesn't believe in God or doesn't believe solely in the God of heaven and earth will scoff at God. Oh, you, you want to believe that? Sure, I believe in this. You believe in that? Every, everything and every God leads to heaven, right? So it's okay if, if, I, if I have a different belief than yours, as long as your belief doesn't override mine, we're in good shape, right? So Cyrus, now consider this, it's very similar to that. He has his own gods, but he also is not opposed to there being a God of the Jews called Yahweh. He just thinks, well, he's one of many gods, so hey, he's allowed this to happen for me. I want to do this for you, and we'll do it for the rest of the exiles from all the other places and send them back home so I can get your allegiance. It'll go well for you, and it'll go well for me. It's a win-win scenario. The Bible Knowledge Commentary explains this. He says, as is evidence from Cyrus's attitude concerning the God of Israel, whom he did not worship, he was not a true believer in Yahweh. Cyrus' concern was to establish a strong buffer of states around his empire, which would be loyal to him, also having his subject peoples resettled in their own countries. He hoped to have the gods in these various parts of the empire praying for him. What do we do with that? Can God use unlikely characters to bring about his perfect will? Yes. Are you opposed to God using unlikely characters to bring about his perfect will? That's a question you have to answer. Again, I think the concern for me and the concern for our understanding of the word is this, is when we close ourselves off, to certain aspects of God because of our own preconceived notions or ideas about how he is or should work, we miss so much as a people. We can tend to become very legalistic as well. Lastly, much like their exodus from Egypt, God allowed the Jewish people under the exodus um, Jewish people, another exodus is a reminder that he still loves them and is in control. Do you see the parallels to this, this last verse, uh, verse 4 in, in Ezra? Check this out. What did the people, what did, what did Cyrus ask the people in his proclamation to do? Not the exiles that were going back, but the people. Give them money, resources for their travels, livestock if they need it. Provide for them whatever they need to go back home. And also pay tribute to them monetarily so that they can rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Do you know how much of a cost that would be? It's a pretty massive expense. 
the stones, I was talking about this in my class today, uh, the, the Jewish temple that was rebuilt in Ezra's time by Zerubbabel, that's a fun name to say, say Zerubbabel, Exactly. You have to have a, a mouthful of marbles to say that. But when it was rebuilt by the monies the exiles brought back, do you know how big some of those stones were? Because they're laying over the side of the Temple Mount now in Jerusalem this day. It was destroyed again in 70 AD by the Roman Empire. But that temple that was built in Ezra's time, the stones were over the side. Some of them 50 to 100 tons apiece. To carve them perfectly, to stack them one on top of another was not a cheap venture. So these Israelites in Ezra's time went back with a ton of money, resources to rebuild the city that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. I want you to hear Exodus again, the first Exodus from Egypt so many centuries prior to this event. Exodus chapter 12, verses 20, 31 through 39. Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron. This is right after the night of the firstborn's death in Egypt, the final plague over Egypt. And Pharaoh says, get out! You're not welcome here! Leave! Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron during the night. Get out, he ordered. Leave my people and take the rest of the Israelites with you. Go and worship Yahweh as you have requested. Take your flocks, your herds, as you said, and be gone. Go out, but bless me as you leave, Pharaoh says. All the Egyptians urged the people of Israel to get out of the land as quickly as possible, for they thought, we will die too. The Israelites took their bread dough before yeast was added. They wrapped their kneading boards in their cloaks and carried them on their shoulders. And the people of Israel did as Moses had instructed. They asked the Egyptians for clothing, for articles of silver and gold. And the Lord caught, listen to this, the Lord caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the Israelites. And they gave the Israelites whatever they asked for. So they stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. Can I have your PlayStation? Can I have your Xbox? Yeah, just take it and go. Leave. Sorry, just bringing modern context to it. That night, the people of Israel left Ramesses and started for Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men plus all the women and children, more than likely totaling well over a million people. A rabble of non-Israelites went with them along with the great flocks and herds of livestock. They were slaves. They didn't own much, but they left a wealthy people. See, though their parting was peaceful this time under King Cyrus, it was nevertheless on par with God's mighty hand of security, provision, and love for his people. When God provides, it may not always be in the way that we expect. To reject a gift because the 
of the giver may sometimes mean that you're rejecting the hand of provision from God. It requires discernment, definitely. But to reject something outright without knowing the God of the Bible is a dangerous thing. So God will not be contrary, again, hear me, God will not be contrary to his character or his word as witnessed in scripture, but he will also not always work in accordance with our comfort levels either. We must learn the heart and the character of God so that we don't inadvertently work against him in the long run. The famed pastor and evangelist F.B. Meyer was once asked to address the first class of a university while crossing the Atlantic on an ocean liner. He was asked to talk about answered prayer that evening in his class. An atheist who was present at the service was asked by friends, well, what did you think of Dr. Meyer's sermon? He answered, I didn't believe a word of it. Answered prayer? Come on. Then Dr. Meyer went to talk to the other passengers. Many of the listeners at his morning address went to hear him, and, did so, and so did the atheist who claimed he just wanted to hear what the babbler had to say. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. Before heading to the service, the atheist had two oranges in his pocket from breakfast that morning. On his way, he passed an older lady sitting on the deck chair, fast asleep. Her hands were open as she laid back on the, on the deck of the ocean liner like this. In the spirit of fun, the atheist put the two... And they say they're not listening. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes, my phone just talked, my, my watch just talked to me. Sorry about that. I'm just getting to the climax of the story. Why does this always happen? All right, let's go back. So this atheist is walking by. This lady who he had seen in Dr. Meyer's sessions was laying there, knocked out in one of those chairs on the deck of the ship with her hands like this and like that. And so he thought, in all good fun, this would be awesome. I'll put those two oranges in my pocket in her open hands. After the meeting, he saw the old lady happily eating one of the pieces of the oranges. You sure seem to be enjoying that orange, he slyly remarked. Oh, yes, sir, she replied. My father is very good to me. He was surprised. Surely your father can't still be alive. She was an older lady at the time. Oh, praise God, she replied, he's very much alive. How can that be possible for somebody your age? Pressed the atheist. She explained, I tell you, sir, I've been seasick for days since I got on board this ocean liner. I was asking my heavenly father if he could send me an orange. And I guess I fell asleep while I was praying. And when I woke up, I didn't just find one orange, I got two. The atheist was speechless. He later came to believe in Christ. See, God can definitely accomplish his purposes through some of the most unlikely of people. The question this morning as our worship team comes to close us out is, 
Are you missing God because your eyes aren't open to the unexpected? Are you closed off to God's blessings and provisions all because he isn't working according to your preconceived notions or timelines? See, many of the religious leaders of Jesus' day completely missed God because they were expecting a different kind of Messiah. He came to his own, but his own received him not, John tells us in John chapter 1. In fact, not only did they reject him, they became inadvertent enemies of God by rejecting his offer of salvation. May we not be so blinded to people by our own pride and arrogance and ignorance that we miss God along the way. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what's going on in your life. If you're like me, yes, you have struggles, difficulties. Your struggles and difficulties may not be the same as mine. Yours may even be worse and more tragic than my circumstances are. But I do believe there is a God who knows all and who believes in you even when you don't believe in yourself. This same God who sent Jesus to die on a cross didn't just send him to die for the worthy, but the unworthy as well. And let's be honest, none of us or no one else who's ever lived has been worthy except for Jesus Christ alone. And the irony of his worthiness dying an unworthy death for you and me is not what seems likely, does it? I've screwed up at times, and I'm sure you have too. I tend to sometimes make a royal mess of things even when my intentions are good, but God is greater than my best intentions. I see faces out there this morning, and I assume many faces are looking back at me through screens on their devices at home. And the reality is, you can't make it through this life on your own. The God who through Jesus Christ gives you salvation is also the God who sees you in exile, wherever that is, and says, come home, it's time. Come out of exile. I have an abundance of wealth and resources for you here. You've just got to move from where you are to where I am. And it may be in a service like this. It may be in a song you hear on the radio. It may be in somebody who isn't intentionally speaking about God that triggers for you that divine moment of reckoning where you say, I'm ready. Don't deceive yourself or be deceived that being stuck in your circumstances where God wants you. Sure, he might want you to sit in it for a little bit like he did for the Israelites for 70 years of exile, but he won't leave you alone there. He who allows you to sit in the exile will also say, come back. 
I don't know where you are this morning. Again, only God knows. Maybe those closest to you. But I'm asking you today to allow the Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to deliver you from bondage and exile to whatever that is that has a stranglehold on you. Don't step out of these doors back into a place of exile and bondage. The altars are always open. Our prayer warriors are willing to pray with you. Believe it or not, as much as the church gets called hypocrites and judgmental people, we love. Yes, we live by faith and not by sight. We have a firm grasp on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or at least many of us do. We are unwavering in that, but it doesn't mean we don't love. Pray with me. Father, we love you, and we know that you love us. And you've called us not only to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but to love our neighbors ourselves. God, remind us of that daily, but also remind us to keep our eyes wide open as we walk through this life, because we don't want to miss you. You reminded us through the prophet Jeremiah, we will find you when we seek you with all of our heart. And God, we want to do that. We want the blinders off. We want to see you in ways that only we can find you and that you can be found. And it means we have to completely surrender everything to see you. Remind us, God, it's not always through the whirlwind, the earthquakes, the firestorms that you speak, but rather through a still, small voice. And sometimes we have to quiet ourselves enough to hear over the rabble that small voice that says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. Oh God, we desire your rest today, and that rest can only be found through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for that sacrifice and that love through the cross of Christ and through whom's, whose blood we have a new covenant of grace and mercy through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.